0: I'm Chris Reback, this is Political Wire Conversations. I might not have a more important political conversation this entire year than the one I just had with Steven Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. You'll be tempted to look at the title of their book, How Democracies Die, and particularly if you sit on the left side of things, think it's purely about President Trump. It's not. Yes, of course, it covers Trump, specifically by looking at authoritarians across continents and throughout history. The authors outline four key indicators of authoritarian behavior and, many of you may not be surprised, they find that candidate and President Trump has infringed on all four. But what you'll also see more clearly and ominously is what we might call the Great Softening. What you'll see is that the weakening of our democracy began long before Donald Trump came down his Trump Tower escalator in 2015 and announced his candidacy. Quite simply, this book will change the way you look at the last 40 years, daily events, our country, and even democracy itself. If you love democracy, you will love this book. Some background. Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt are professors of government at Harvard. Levitsky's research interests include political parties, authoritarianism and democratization, and weak and informal institutions with a focus on Latin America. Ziblatt's interests include democratization, state-building, comparative politics, and historical political economy. His focus is on European political development. Together, they've spent more than 20 years studying the breakdown of democracies around the globe, places like Germany, Italy, Chile, Venezuela, Peru, and many others. Now, as you'll hear, much to their own surprise, our country has become their laboratory. I should add, if you love democracy, this book also might worry you. While the authors make clear that American institutions are incredibly strong and indeed to date they've held up, you'll also see how things can change and how they can go south. Our days for taking democracy for granted are gone. But before we begin this terrific conversation, I want to tell you about our show's sponsor, the Cook Political Report. What will the political fallout be from the ongoing Russia investigation? What's next on immigration, infrastructure, and more? And what's in store for this year's congressional campaigns? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com and one other ask before we begin. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. I'm really grateful. It makes a real difference in helping others find the podcast and, as I might have mentioned, the positive comments make me feel good. So, if you like these conversations, you know my ask. I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. As always, though, my parallel ask. If you don't like the conversations, well... Thank you for still listening, but please just forget I mentioned the whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. Stephen, Daniel, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate uh, both of your times. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So if I understand correctly, for years now, um, you've studied democracies, why they fail and why they work. And I'm sure friends and family were like, that's such a nice academic pursuit. But, you know, (laughs) too bad you didn't pick a topic that anyone in America would ever have to think about. And now, of course, people can't stop talking about uh, your book or your ideas. You have a New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. So, um, Stephen, let, let's start with, I think, the most important question. Um, do people who laugh last really laugh best?
1: I don't think, anybody, I don't think anybody's laughing at the situation. Certainly, and Daniel and I have talked about this quite a bit over the last couple of years, neither of us ever imagined that we would put the ideas, the what we have learned uh, studying, in his case, Europe, in my case, Latin America, into public discussion here in the United States. We never thought we'd be applying these ideas to our own country. I can speak for myself. Like most, the vast majority of Americans, I had taken American democracy for granted. I had assumed that no matter how recklessly our politicians might behave, no matter what happened, that our our democratic institutions couldn't possibly break. And I think that was mistaken.
0: I hear you, Stephen, and and I was being tug and cheek, obviously about the great thing of uh, two you know two political scientists and government experts uh, finally getting a, a you know getting a bestseller on the New York Times list. It's quite a thing. But no doubt, incredibly serious um, topic, and and I think that's my own point of view. I'm sure uh, for others as well. That's why it's taking hold. I, I would think that's why um, a subject like this and a question of you know or a statement and an e- explanation of how democracies die. That's why it's it's resonating. So Daniel, which did come first? Yeah, I, I assumed that you both never expected that the country most relevant to the question um, of how democracies die might be our own. Um, but which came first? The idea to write the book, or Donald Trump on the national political scene? Um, was this a particular call to arms, or was the dissolving of norms and of the guardrails that you guys write about that you'd seen over the last couple of years, did you did you kind of have a book in the works, and then uh, Donald Trump came along, or was it the other way around?
2: Really, so yeah, two, two points, I would say. I mean, what really brought us into daily conversation about this as we began to Work on this was the political campaign. I mean, it was partly, the, I mean, it was the Republican primary season as well as the general election season, and the tenor of the of the debate. Um, and so, in that sense, it was a reaction to the events of 2015, 2016, in particular, you know, the debates, you know, that came out of Donald Trump's on on the campaign trail, um, you know, threatening to lock up his rival or saying he might not accept the results of the election or uh, the condoning of violence; these were things we had seen elsewhere in other countries. So again, Europe in the 1930s and 20s, and in other parts of the world in different points in time. So we thought, you know, this is amazing that this is now happening here. You know, how and lots of people thought this is just these are just words, and in some sense they are just words. I mean that you know it's important to emphasize that. But on the other hand, we've seen that those words often lead to bad things. So in that sense, that the kind of initial the real impetus for the book, uh, my first point is really was the campaign. Um, But, you know, as we began to work on the book and as we have thought about it, uh, there are these deeper uh, and that's really one of the main points of the book. There are these deeper underlying problems. I mean, this is not a book particularly about Donald Trump alone. I mean, this is really uh, placing the American political system into a kind of broader perspective and trying to think about what's gone wrong in the American political system. And we really think that that, the problem runs deeper than Trump. And so that's really what we're trying to diagnose in the book.
1: Yeah, there's only only one chapter on Trump.
0: Out of nine in reading it it, it i did i didn 't take it purely on that i mean I guess the the you know what we see going on um you know with President Trump and some of the questions, and you go through it with your you know four key indicators of authoritarian behavior um, that 's the perhaps you know f- from my point of view that that 's the acute point that that exists now. Um, but as you guys outline and, and the context matters, um, there was kind of a, a degradation of democratic norms, um, you know, the, the kind of erasing of the guardrails of democracy, um, going on, uh, for years. And, and so let's maybe talk about the, the, that context if we can before we get into the four key indicators and then, um, you know, where, where you find that, uh, you know, where President Trump might fall on, on those four. So the, Mutual toleration versus institutional forbearance and and these this erasing of of democratic norms stephen why don't we go to you on this one e- explain those two ideas if you would and and why does that matter in terms of uh um helping shape this paradigm
1: sure these are i mean there are many 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 norms in a society in in our uh in a polity, there are countless number of norms that Donald Trump may has violated, um, but we really are only fundamentally interested in two of them. There are a lot of norms that really it don't, it don't norms of decorum, norms of uh, you know Trump is the first president in a very long time who hasn't had a pet. Um, not all norms are the same, and not all norm violations are the same. We're focused really narrowly on two that we think are essential to any democracy first one is really basic, um, and that is what, what uh, we call mutual toleration, which is simply accepting your partisan rivals as legitimacy. We may disagree. We may really dislike um, our partisan rivals, but both privately and publicly, we recognize that they love the country just as we do, uh, that they're patriotic, and that they have a legitimate right to compete for office and to govern. Um, that seems really simple, seems really basic, but in most countries, most of the time, that has not been an established norm. Our country wasn't founded with those norms. It took a couple of decades to for them, to, or even more than that. To, took well into the 19th century before they took hold in this country, um, and almost any time you see a democratic breakdown, you will see that norm either not exist or fall apart. second one is a little bit more complicated, what we call forbearance, which is the act of not exercising to the to the hilt a legal right, so it is underutilizing it is, uh, power. Um, very quickly, think about what our politicians can legally do. Presidents, legally constitutionally, can pardon whomever they want, whenever they want, making a mockery of uh, judicial and congressional oversight. Presidents can pack the Supreme Court if they have a majority in Congress. They can expand, and they don't like the Supreme Court. They can uh, pass a law to expand the size of the court to eleven to thirteen. Fill it with allies, get a majority. Uh, presidents can can circumvent Congress if they are not getting their agenda through Congress by presidential proclamations or executive orders. There's nothing in the Constitution that forbids that. Congress can shut down the government, as we know, can refuse to fund the government, throwing the country into into paralysis. Congress had under the constitutional right of advice and consent, the Senate can block every single appointment of the president, can, can not allow the president to fill a cabinet or to fill up Supreme Court vacancies. And, of course, the Congress can uh, impeach the president on virtually any grounds. To prevent a our system, our constitutional system of checks and balances, from descending into dysfunction, deadlock, and even authoritarianism, it is essential that our both parties exercise forbearance, that they... Uh, that the the spirit of the law prevails over the letter of the law. If politicians use the letter of the law, use the rules to the hilt uh, in a way that eviscerates or undermines the spirit of the law, we are in trouble. If you look at any failing democracy anywhere in the world, Latin America is the place that I know best, you will see this sort of behavior using the letter of the law to undermine the spirit of the law. Legal scholar Mark Tushnet calls it constitutional hardball. Constitutional harbor is legal. It's constitutional. Um, what the what the Senate did in denying President Obama the right to fill a Supreme Court vacancy in 2016 was perfectly legal, constitutional. But politics like that uh, throws the country into crisis. So that, that's what forbearance is. It's that restraint
0: in, in the exercise of power. And And Daniel, to that point among the things that the your book really uh you know made me see and in in it's really it's one of these books where it it causes you to look at everyday things that already are going on and and look at them differently look at them through through you know through, with a, a through a different lens but one of them was for for me at least is the the role and how much of democracy depends on things that are not written down and and so and so I started to think about, well, so is that a good thing? And, and, you know, on the one hand, yeah, of course it's a good thing because, uh, you know, you, you, you want, um, the ability to do the right thing that the, these norms and these democratic norms are, are part of what, um, you know, we're all trying to go forward, you know, with the right spirit. And yet on the other hand, then we get into various situations and you identify them. And, and there have been, you know, some on, on, uh, you know, uh, that, that you identify this, uh, uh, you know, some occurring on the Democratic side as well as the Republican side, although you, I, I, think that you, you know, identify many more, um, uh, destruction, much more destruction of the norms on the re- Republican side than the Democrat. And so then you think, well, gosh, you know, it'd help if we had everything written down. So how, how does that balance? Work. How should we think about that balance, Daniel? Um, when we in in making democracy work, do we want everything written down? Do we not want everything written down? And and how how does that uh, help democracy?
2: It's an interesting point. Um, and you know, the reality is that any social setting, families, classroom, uh, employment society at large political system there's always written rules and unwritten rules and as many written rules as one has there's always going to be unwritten rules and you know just what what are the appropriate ways of behaving and these are saying you know you if you violate those unwritten rules you also face some kind of punishment sanction kind of finger shaking or whatever you know so the point though is that it's really hard to it's not as if we can design a political system in which unwritten rules don't Matter, um, and so the, the the real question is, you know, it's certainly there's certain, you know, one could imagine there's certain things, conflicts of interest, some of the things that Steve just laid out, where things could be formalized, perhaps, and that they would have greater weight given what's what's been happening in the United States. But I, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, the deeper underlying problems which are driving this norm erosion, that uh, that are the that the, the norm erosion that we've been talking about is present and so even if we were to rewrite our rules and ways to try to prevent some of these abuses from taking place we really think and we make the case in the book that driving all of this is a, an intense level of un, really unprecedented in the 20th century level of uh, political polarization in which republicans and democrats uh view each other with increased fear and and incredible animosity you know we think that this really began on the republican side and part of the kind of Weakness, I think, in the American political system is the radicalization of the Republican Party. Um, and so this these deep lo- levels of animosity, you know, even if we were to rewrite the rules at some level, this wouldn't necessarily address that. So, you know, one of the things that we lay out in the book is both what drove, what's driven this process of polarization and when one thinks about solutions, how can we address that? I mean, And we have, you know, maybe fewer ideas on that front. I mean, we really mostly focused on identifying the source of the problems, but identifying the correct source of the problem, which again is polarization, leads us to kind of focus on different types of solutions than we otherwise would. So, so I guess the point is, you know, again, you know, institutional reform is great and it can get us part of the way. Uh, down the road. But, you know, at some level, we have to address the underlying social divisions that exist in our society.
0: And the softening of those norms, which I, I think that you guys would argue, creates the environment where an authoritarian could potentially emerge. It was that softening that you guys argue really made the opportunity. We haven't gotten there yet, and we can talk about We will talk about that. One more question on that context and on that history and and what got us there, and you were just talking about it a little bit, Daniel. It felt to me like two of the things that you really point to, at least in the most recent history and after the Constitution was written in Jefferson versus uh, Adams and and everything that happened there. You also talk about, obviously, post-Civil War and uh, what the states did to help minimize the 15th Amendment and the Jim Crow laws. But in terms of current history, you really point to uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And then in terms of a personification, Newt Gingrich and his 1978, I think it was, um, election to Congress. Uh, talk to me, uh, I guess, uh, Stephen, if you would, on is that the current... Original sin, if you will, the current version of it, and um, take me through what, what what did you see? What's the role of the, you know the Republican Party or of parties in general? What got us here?
1: Well, it's um, uh, several streams coming together. One of which is certainly a reaction to the Civil Voting Rights Act. Um, so there has been a massive partisan realignment uh, in ways that have, for the first time, uh, at least the, the first time since. The Reconstruction era lined our parties up um, on different sides of the racial, religious, and cultural fronts. In the in the past, going back not that long, uh, 1960s and 1970s, the parties differed on a bunch of issues, but in demographically and culturally, they were very similar. They were basically white Christian parties. Evangelicals leaned Democrat as late as the 1970s. Um, what the, the Civil and Voting Rights Act did, uh, as is widely known, is led to a massive migration of Southern whites from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. African-Americans were fully enfranchised. They became overwhelmingly Democrat. Two other things happened, though, uh, roughly the same time. Um, the 60s began a pretty large-scale wave of immigration, uh, mostly Latin American and Asian. Most of those immigrants or their children have become Democrats. Uh, And third, beginning with Reagan, you had a massive migration of evangelicals from the, uh, well, into the Republican Party, such that by the 2000s, the Democrats were this very sort of diverse um, quilt of uh, of mainly urban uh, secular whites and a variety of ethnic minorities. And the Republican Party was predominant in a very diverse society, a predominant, overwhelmingly white and Christian. Party, and so the party didn't just differ on taxes and healthcare or other uh, economic policies, but they differed on really fundamental issues of race, religion, and culture. Um, and we think that that is uh, that that's a much deeper divide. And um, and what's and getting to to Gingrich the. The polarization has really been driven by the extremism of the Republican Party because the Republican Party's constituency, white Christians, are not just any group. White Christians used to be a dominant, overwhelming majority in the electorate, and they used to be at the top of every social, political, cultural hierarchy, economic hierarchy that existed in this country. They, they ran the show, uh, and that is obviously changing. And so loss of a majority and loss of social status can be deeply, deeply threatening. And we think that that is at the core of Republican radicalization. Now what Gingrich, Gingrich didn't invent constitutional hardball in the United States by any means, but he was one of the first politicians to sort of sense that this more hard, more, that more uh, polarizing rhetoric and hardball politics would be rewarded electorally, that there was a constituency for that within the Republican party, so his his replacement his first his attacks on on moderate Republicans like Bob Michael and eventually his replacement of michael, uh, and uh, his leadership in the House really began to transform the republican party uh, and you saw that in, in the initial Gingrich shutdowns in the 1990s the partisan impeachment of of Bill Clinton that's where you really started to see it manifest itself.
0: And Daniel, so that sets the stage. And now the question is uh, President Trump. And one of the, it, you know, perhaps it's only one chapter in the book, but one of the key questions um, and that, that you raise and that you look at is, um, you know, is he an authoritarian? And and you look at that in comparison to four key indicators of authoritarian behavior and, and having looked at it historically and across countries and across continents and across time periods. Um, uh, you find that Donald Trump has infringed on all four areas. So um, what are the, you know, quickly, what are the four areas and uh, why do you find that Donald Trump has uh, infringed on them?
2: Yeah. So one of the benefits we really think of looking around the world to other countries and to look at the United States by looking at other countries is that we kind of can see other there's other kinds of political leaders that look very similar to Donald Trump that have emerged in other countries, not as much uh, rising to the peak of power in the United States. And so we, we draw on the research of Juan Linz, a great political scientist. Who uh, lived through the Weimar years and uh, the Spanish Civil War? And he initially proposed this kind of litmus test, as he called it. And we've elaborated that and developed it, again, looking at other countries around the world where before somebody gets into power, you know, are there warning signs that this person might then in turn begin to behave like an authoritarian once in power? So this is really a kind of test for for candidates or potential political leaders, you know, looking at their rhetoric on the campaign trail before they come into office. And the four indicators we, we develop are, you know, does the politician reject or demonstrate a kind of weak commitment to democratic rules of the game? Uh, do they deny the legitimacy of their political opponents? So in other words, you know, treat their political opponents not really as rivals, but as enemies rather, and as dangers to to a country. Uh, The third indicator is, do they tolerate or encourage violence? Um, And and this is obviously a a dangerous sign if somebody does this. And then the fourth indicator is, do they demonstrate again in their rhetoric or behavior readiness to curtail civil liberties of their opponents, including the media? And so these are four general kinds of categories. Um, And it turns out, as you say, that Donald Trump and the campaign trail um, passed this litmus test with flying colors. I mean, you know, just to give you, give you some examples, sort of on the, on the first in terms of denying, you know, uh, rejecting the basic rules of the game, he kind of challenged, the, he, he wouldn't commit to necessarily accepting the result of an election, although there was no evidence of election fraud in, in this debate. I think it was October uh, 2015, saying, hey, I know if the election turns out not the way I like, yeah, I may not accept it. And this is, again, what authoritarians do and people have done in other countries. Uh, we've never seen this in the United States in 20 uh, Denial of legitimacy of opponents. I mean, his, his accusation that his political opponent was a criminal um, baselessly, you know, I mean, without really any evidence for political purposes and then, you know, threatening to lock her up if he got into office. Again, you know, this was rhetoric, but it's dangerous rhetoric. Uh, encouraging violence. I mean, he didn't, you know, there was a kind of condoning of violence at political rallies in which, you know, he paid for legal bills of his supporters who beat up, critics, um, and you say that in the good old days, we used to carry these guys out in stretchers. This kind of condoning violence is absolutely unprecedented in the American context of, of people, candidates for major party running for office. And you kind of forget how unusual this, in fact, was. Um, and then his, the, the on the fourth dimension, readiness to curtail civil liberties, his, his, Attacks on the press, which have been, you know, been his bread and butter, calling the press the enemy of the people, you know, and really going after free media, which is a, a basic hallmark of democracy. Um, again, is a kind of clear warning sign. So, all in all, of four of these dimensions, before he even was elected, there were signs that. You know, there was a kind of weak commitment to democratic norms or at least an indifference to democratic norms, which is not to say that somebody, you know, who violates these, these rules or these norms is going to be somebody who goes on to be a great dictator, but it just means that we need to pay attention and that we need to get clear. And so we really think Americans and politicians and Democrats and Republicans should have known what they were getting, given, given this kind of uh, success on the litmus test.
0: And Stephen, what type of alert do you feel folks need to be on now. I mean, when you compare, um, you know, what you see in the news, what you see happening, and, and you compare it to the case studies that you've looked at, uh, you know, throughout time, uh, wh- where where do you feel we are on the scale?
1: I uh, don't know about a scale, but um, I mean, it, it's, for the reasons that Daniel pointed out, we, you know, anytime you elect into the highest office in the land, a figure who's clearly demonstrably not committed to to democratic and constitutional norms, you have to be on alert. Uh, the election of a, 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 of a leader with authoritarian inclinations does not guarantee democratic breakdown, but it's certainly, uh, something to worry about and be, be very alert about. Now, American, we have very strong, compared to the countries in the world that, that I study, compared to all the other democratic breakdowns that we discuss in the book. The United States has pretty robust democratic institutions, and we've seen a bunch of them work already. So American democracy is, is hard to kill, um, and it, it shouldn't be that surprising that uh, you know at the end of the first year of Trump's presidency, although there's a, there are a bunch of things to be concerned about, our democratic institutions remain intact. Um, but there are, um, and, and and again, it's, we should worry about Trump, but at the same time, we should worry about the underlying erosion of Democratic norms. One thing that that Daniel and I worry about a lot, in fact, we worry about it more, I think, now than when we were writing the book six months ago, is the complicity of the Republican Party. So we We expected when we wrote the book that at least some faction of the Republican Party, particularly in the Senate, would stand up and sort of draw a red line. Against some of President Trump's worst uh, efforts to abuse power, and that is increasing. It's, it's increasingly not the case. It's increasingly un, unclear that they will that they will do that. In fact, it seems unlikely that they will do that. Uh, the Republican Party has lined up, um, really, uh, almost entirely uh, behind Trump, and so it, that, that the Republican Party controls Congress. They have, ultimately, it is their responsibility to check his abuse. And um, and that seems, so far, it has does not seem very likely. So the courts have done a pretty good job, I think. The media, as, a, as an important institution of democracy, I think has done an outstanding job. Um, but Congress has sort of, which is supposed to play kind of a, uh, a watchdog role over or executive abuse, has been transformed under the Republicans into a, into a lapdog. And that worries us a lot.
0: And so, Daniel, going off of what Stephen was just saying, um, the role of Congress. Let's also talk, though, about the role of Democrats. And, and, you know, as I was thinking about how do we as a country, um, you know, resecure our democratic norms and re-secure the playing field, um, it's clear that, you know, from, from what, what you both write, it's going to take a lot of what Many of us have a hard time imagining, I guess, which is everyone starting to work well together um, so one what 's your point of view on the quote resistance and what 's your point of view on you know the the calls i mean there 's a lot of pressure on the democratic side um not to go along and even right now as we're having this conversation um there's the emergence of a potential budget there's the immigration question still on the table still unopened at the, uh, still unresolved um at the time that that we're having this conversation and and a ton of pressure um on the democratic side on the left not to uh, you know not to play ball and not to go along and and so what should Democrats be doing and and how do we start to um, establish a, a a more secure set of uh, norms
2: you know that 's exactly the right question because in many ways I think this book is less and this gets back to the initial question this is less an anti trump book and more a pro democracy book and that 's really our target is how do, how do restore and and how to save american democracy. I mean, that's what we're providing accounts of experiences of that. Um, and so with that as the kind of overarching purpose, you know, we it, we kind of have a response to this view which is increasingly common which, you know, is in the, you hear this in lots of different circles as you note here of that Democrats really need to begin to fight like Republicans, and that, you know, Republicans have, may have abandoned forbearance, but Democrats continue to play by the by existing rules and self-restraint, and they keep getting a black eye. And so at some point, people say, you know, that enough is enough, and it's time to kind of take the gloves off. And so, you know, what this means, you know, very concretely is, you know, government, you know, filibuster and government shutdown. The Democrats had their, you know, first government shutdown, and in a sense, you know, took a page out of the New Gingrich playbook to kind of, because there was something they really believed in, which is DACA and the Dreamers, which you know are very important issues, and you know I can sympathize with with that. But the question is, you know, do is the, is the way to achieve Democrats' goals um, to, is to kind of abandon forbearance and, and to fight like Republicans? And we really think this is actually a mistake to do this. We think it's really important to continue to remain committed to to norms of forbearance. Um, you know, so what this means, very again concretely, you know, is looking forward if the Senate, if the Democrats, you know, retake the Senate, for instance, in the fall. Um, and uh, President Trump has an opportunity to name a new Supreme Court nominee, there is going to be great temptation for Democrats to respond to uh, President Trump in the way that Republicans had responded to President Obama, which was not even hold hearings. And, you know, when, when Republicans did this to Obama's nominee at the end of Obama's presidency, this was really a violation of a 150-year-old norm. Um, this had never happened before in the 20th century that the that, that, that Senate didn't even hold hearings for the, for the nominee. And so, again, Democrats might be tempted to do this because they think, you know, this is the way to bring Trump down or to restrain Trump. And again, we think that the problem with this is that, you know, when both sides I- I abandon forbearance, uh, this, lead, this has the risk of leading not to simply kind of increased restraint, but really the opposite, a kind of growing spiral of escalating politics. And so while we think that Democrats need to be aggressive, they need to be muscular. They you know it's fine to have protests. It's fine, you know, we should you know, Democrats should take back over the Congress and win elections and fight aggressively, but they need to do so in a way that reinforces rather than dismantles uh existing democratic these these norms of of forbearance and mutual toleration that we talked about. So, you know, the, the the it's a hard it's a hard case sometimes to make this uh, you know, to to kind of arg- make this argue this position because there's a lot of ways in which people think, well, this sounds cowardly, but we really think actually it's really the opposite. That Democrats need to act with great political courage and take the risk of acting with self restraint, and that if you have the long run perspective, the health of the of American democracy, the Democrats need to sustain that, and that if they abandon forbearance, you know. Maybe Trump is brought down, but American democracy will be dismantled, also in the process, or you know, become at least more fragile. And so we, you know, so the point is to try to, you know, for Democrats to to defeat Trump and defeat Republicans, but again, to do so in a way that reinforces the basic norms that have made our system work to, to the degree that it has. Uh,
1: Can I make a couple of quick points? Yes, please. Um, I, I think a lot. I mean, it, it's completely understandable. Then and legitimate that progressives and Democrats want to – don't want to play the sucker and don't want to be repeatedly sucker punched and want to fight back. Um, But I think a lot of of the folks who hold that position have not lived Democratic breakdown elsewhere. Uh, And one of the the things that that both of us learned independently in in our studies of Democratic breakdowns elsewhere in the world is that this sort of tit-for-tat Spiraling norm erosion does not end well. It very rarely ends well. So there's, so there's a great risk and a great cost to reinforcing norm erosion. Secondly, um, we believe, and this is actually David Frum's argument, that a lot of the behavior, the, the abusive, the increasingly abusive behavior on the part of the Republican Party, is is basically desperation. The Republicans are operating from a very sh- uh, uh, short time horizons, narrow time horizons. They know that as they are constituted as a party, they're they going to have a very, very difficult time winning elections, even in the medium run, which is leading them to bend and break the rules to the extent that they can in order to, to preserve their power. Democrats are at a different position. Uh, their medium-term prospects, electorally, are pretty good. And so we think that they have an interest, that, that strategically, Democrats have an interest in preserving our democracy so that they, so we can make it to the medium term
0: and I felt that in what you wrote and uh, that was really in a sense the call to arms which is um, this is about something bigger than any one party or any one politician um, it really is about the the future and the state of our democracy to, to wrap it up um, either Stephen or, or Daniel um, what can individuals do you just described what the Democratic Party um, could do what the Republican Party could do what, what, politi- what can those of us just walking around the street do
1: that's the hardest question of the day. Um look, I mean this this is not a uh, sexy answer, but uh you know, vote and mobilize people to vote. I mean one one of the reasons so you know, the best way to stop Trump and the Republican parties is to defeat them at the ballot box. Period. Um secondly, and num- one of one of the problems that one of the reasons why our why our, uh parties have grown so polarized, is that electoral turnout is is relatively low. Um, so mobilizing people to vote, defending and promoting the vote, is is actually a, it's a, a really healthy thing for a democracy and, uh, and might even adjust polarization. You know, obviously there are limits to what individuals can do, um, but I think that, uh, you know, all of us, from the national level down to the neighborhood level, have to look for ways to reach across this vast, uh, call it red state, blue state chasm, um, you know, many I, talking to, to many, many friends, neighbors, colleagues, people who were worried about uh, a Trump and American democracy. Many of them don't even know a Trump voter. Um, and, you know, that that's a symptom of a, of a really serious problem. Right. In a democracy, when people don't even know anybody from the other party, we're we're in, a, we're in bad shape. Now, that's it's not easy for people say in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to go out and find Trump voters and become friends with them, but um, we need to be thinking on those on lines. We need to be thinking about um, about reestablishing dialogue across this partisan
2: divide. And I, I would just add to that that you know, in the spirit of forbearance, you know, demand of our politicians forbearance and not reward. Yeah rule-breaking and norm-breaking. And so, although, you know, one may sort of feel what whichever side one is on, when politicians sort of, your your favorite politician socks it to the other side, both rhetorically and in terms of action, rather than rewarding that and applauding those lines, doing the opposite. And that, you know, that requires a kind of sense of responsibility and self-restraint from citizens as well you know so it, it, which i don't want to make it sound like everyone needs to just be polite all the time i mean there's there's things that people care about passionately and there's important issues that just, that demand struggle and hard fights and so on but it needs to be done in a way that reinforces the democratic rule and you know when people say oh well come on you know this is this is just about being polite you know it's that's more than that and that's really taking democracy for granted and and the kind of point of our book and, you know, we we hope leaders get out of it is by looking at how other countries have gone through these experiences. One begins to see how these kinds of situations can really unravel very quickly. If one doesn't carry out that form of politics.
0: Well, that's certainly what I took from the book and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a real wake up and it it really does. It it changed the, 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 uh, maybe it's the, I don't know if it's the best thing I can say about it. um, But maybe it is. It, it, has caused me to look at things that are happening every day in the news um, with different eyes. And so um, thank you. I think you've written just an incredibly important book about the, you know, one of the things that all of us as Americans need to hold most dear um, and that's our democracy. Um, So thank you. Thank you both very, very much for your time. Um, I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so
0: much. That was my conversation with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. We're at an important crossroads, one that many of us thought we'd never see. Their book lays it all out, and as I think you could tell from the conversation, I can't recommend it highly enough. My thanks to Steve and Daniel for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.